Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. We all know the cliche that laughter is the best medicine. In addition to laughter, research suggests that levity and empathy are also great medicines. One of the best testing grounds I can imagine for considering the value of levity and empathy would have to be the pediatric oncology department. For children and for the parents, the challenges faced there can be simply overwhelming. What's it like to work in the pediatric oncology department? What skills are most useful in helping the children and parents who are facing some of the heaviest burdens imaginable? And how might bringing empathy and levity be part of serving those patients and the parents as they deal with these burdens? As it happens, I know just the guy to ask. Mark Bader is a registered nurse who works in the pediatric oncology department at a Silicon Valley-based hospital in California. As you will hear, Mark is the embodiment of kindness, compassion, the desire to help, and one of the finest transmitters of levity I have ever known. He will share with you his method for helping people in their darkest hours. And I expect you will glean from Mark various ways you can rock these skills in your personal and professional lives when you want to assist people who are in difficult places. So listen in as Mark and I talk about bringing levity and empathy to serious situations. Mark Bader, welcome to Super Psyched. I'm sorry, welcome to what? <laughs> this is awkward. Uh, this, is not, this is that whole podcast smartless. thing we were talking about earlier. Is, I was, your people told me this was smartless. I, this is really awkward. Yes, it's nearly as big as smartless, but maybe not quite there yet. It's okay. any minute now. All right. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Adam. I am a longtime listener and first-time guest. And that goes for any podcast, really. I've never been a guest. So I'm super excited to, to get rolling with you here. I'm a big fan of you and, of course, your podcast. And I'm so happy you're here. So you are a pediatric oncology nurse. And I'm wondering, when people hear that, obviously, their eyes probably open a little bit wider. How did you decide to get into this? <laughs> well, it's not just that their eyes open wider. It's a real uh, conversation killer. You can imagine <laughs> you're at a, whatever, a cocktail party. Oh, you know, well, I'm in finance. I'm in tech. You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, a pediatric oncology case manager. It's like <laughs> dead silence, yeah. right? Like I have a joke with a dear friend of mine. She's a licensed clinical social worker. And her job is that she works with children who were sexually assaulted. She's like a forensic psychologist. And it's like Miriam and I can't be together in a room full of new people because if they ask the two of us, what do you guys do? It's, it's right. like, you go first. No, you go first. Um, <laughs> all right. So to get your answer, it's a long story. So bear with me. I'll tell you, nursing was, of course, as you know, a second career for me. And the way that I got into pediatric oncology specifically was that I was approached by a pediatric oncologist about 15 years ago. But that doesn't tell the whole story, Adam. So let me just back up a little bit. Sure. I got into nursing as a second career because I just kind of screwed around. Not going to lie, wasn't the most focused 
person in college, or even high school for that matter, and didn't have a lot of ambition. I had a lot of fun. And then as I got older, you know, nearing 30, I was just looking for something a little bit more meaningful in my day. And my wife, as you know, Cheryl, was working as an OBGYN. She was in her residency and I used to just come visit with her to try to have dinner when she was doing her 50 hour plus weeks. And I would just sit and kind of sometimes wait two hours and I'd look around and I'm not the kind of person, as you know, who could sit and, and, <laughs> and tune out the world. I'm like, I'm all into everybody's business. And I'm watching this medical facility. I'm watching like this labor and delivery unit, like the hubbub and the busy and everybody's running around and everybody's focused and everybody's at the end of the day, really helping people. Like that's what I want to do in life mm-hmm. is help people. Man, I thought, wow, I've never really been a math or science person, but geez, I think I could get into this kind of a profession. Like, where do I, what do I do? How do I, you know, I'm in business with my father right now mm-hmm. at the time. And I'm thinking, look, he gave me a great opportunity. You know, I'm living like the sweet life of being spoiled by my parents for almost 30 years. <laughs> it's time to move on, man. So then I kind of thought, okay, nursing, but I don't want to do this. Like, literally blood curdling screams coming from labor rooms. And I'm thinking, this is not what I want. But whatever Cheryl's doing is not your yes, brand. Not, not for me, no. And honestly, no woman really wants to see a male nurse walk into. <laughs> In the middle of that, I mean, for sure not. Let's just, let's just call it what it is. So I thought, you know, I love kids. I'm a kid at heart. I've always been a kid at heart. I'm Peter Pan. I don't want to grow up. I'm like, pediatric nurse, that could be my gig. Why not? So I went to nursing school and... I got my degree and I got my license and I immediately started working as a night shift nurse in a pediatric unit and then ultimately trained for pediatric ICU and needle natal ICU. And I did that for almost five years. And Mm -hmm. with the exception of the fact that you have to give up every other weekend and certain holidays and when you're a low man on the totem pole, you don't get much vacation. That's really not a big deal when you're in your 20s and you you get a new job as a nurse. But when you're in your early thirties and you have two young kids and a family that likes to go on vacations and it was took its toll. Oh, and let me just stop by saying for the first time in my life, I now felt like I had an ambition. I had a focus. I had something that I was working toward that really felt right to me. And it was a circuitous route that I think young people, if your young listeners are here, I would say like, don't get bogged down when you're junior year of high school trying to figure out your career path, because I'm going to skip to the end of the story and just say that every day I go into work and I am excited to come in and I love what I do and I feel fulfilled and I feel like I'm making a difference. And nobody, when I was 17, 18, 19, could have told me, you, sir, will become a pediatric oncology case manager and you will love your work and that's what's in your future. So after I did about five years of bedside nursing, I got a discharge coordinator role. And that was going great too. I felt like, okay, now I'm sort of less in the bedside. People said, oh, are you going to miss patient care? I'm like, no, because I can still interact with the parents and this and that. And that's fine. But in that role as the discharge coordinator is where I was approached. And now we're getting to the answer to your question. I was approached by one of the pediatric oncologists who said, listen, we have a need for a case manager in our clinic. It needs to be a nurse. And we think you could do it. We want you. And I said, "Ah, I don't really think that's really for me. I'm not really that keen on oncology. Like I like the oncology patients and everything, but I I don't really think that you want me. I'm not that versed in all the... She's like, doesn't matter. You'll learn it all. 
And I actually put her off for a while. And then I realized that no weekends, no holidays, moving to like an outpatient clinic would be a better quality of life. And so I kind of put aside my hesitations about jumping into this really intense, very micro-focused specialty and decided I can always go back. Let's do it. Let's try it. And it's so interesting. You and I have known each other for a very long time. We've known each other even in high school days back when you would take the stage and star in Bye Bye Birdie. And (laughs) a year precisely before I took on the same role on stage for Bye Bye Birdie, you actually tutored me on how to play the part. But the thing about you is that you've always been the funniest guy in the room and also having the unusual skill set of being able to be serious when seriousness was needed. So it seems almost like this was custom fit for you to be kind of a Patch Adams approach to where you take the gravity of oncology very seriously, but you also take the human connection as something, I'm guessing, as something that's sacred, important, maybe one of your best possible contributions that makes you a real fit. What are some of the strengths? What are some of the ways that make you as you see it, probably a good fit for this pediatric oncology position. So it's interesting because I feel like there are case managers in our department even that are working in different subspecialties of pediatrics. I'm obviously the only one doing oncology, but there's also like a gastroenterology case manager and there's a cardiology case manager. All the things that parents have to deal with an ongoing medical condition with their kids, we offer a case manager. And we all do our jobs differently. We all have different strengths and different focuses on our jobs. For me, of course, you nailed it. It's humor. I try to find humor in every place where it's appropriate. And I've learned that even in the darkest of moments, you know, a little bit of levity, not an inappropriate joke, but just a little bit of levity when you find the opportunity. I'm constantly trying to find that opening. And, and oftentimes it's at my own expense. I'll be the buffoon, I'll be the target. And often, especially with the children, they respond to that. And when the parents see that the children respond to that, then I've automatically sort of made a little bit of a connection with the parents and gained their trust. The other thing is that I have a different way of looking at situations and, you know, I'll hang back and listen to the doctors talk to the parents and I'll be jotting down their reactions. I'll look at their eyes. I'll look at their faces. I'll tell you, COVID has been very difficult for me in terms of doing my job the way I used to because I can't get facial cues the way I used to because everybody's in a mask now. Mm. So I used to really depend on what I feel like is my keen sense of getting to see somebody's reaction in the moment by reading facial cues. They're almost gone now with the face shields and the face masks and it's hard to hear people. So I've had to sort of readjust my tactics a little bit. I'm doing a lot more of this actually, of Zooming with patients, parents, and a lot of more emailing, which is not my love. I do like the personal connection. I'm a people person and I like to sort of meet people where they are. And that's another strength I have is that I'm very, can very easily pivot. There are some families, some parents who are very much in control, like they want to do everything and that's fine. I tell them what my role is and I explain what I can do and if they want, and they just sort of want to be more independent. And there are some who literally don't know what's happening with their child from a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, unless I've communicated with them, given them written instructions, like I have to map out everything. And that can be for three years in some cases, if it's a typical leukemia patient, 
or it could just be, you know, a six month if it's just a very low grade sarcoma that can be treated with a couple months of chemo. Well, I'm so taken by what you said because here you're recognizing the sacredness of your work. You take it very seriously. You take it so seriously that you even try to study the parents before you've interacted just to kind of get a sense. I think intuitively or perhaps explicitly, you recognize that rapport and match drive outcomes clinically, that it's not just about medication A addressing the condition, but you're actually recognizing that how you formulate the interpersonal components of your work is what actually drives many of the outcomes. So you take it very seriously and you try to find the levity there. We also know that levity in appropriate dosing and timing can really also drive outcomes and build rapport through it. So you're really just showing up with your strengths kind of front loaded. And I imagine that not being able to see facial responses has been a challenging component of working during COVID. I'm wondering, parents who are dealing with cancer in their children, I'm guessing are going through a really long, traumatizing, dark night of the soul. And I'm just wondering what have been some of the things that you've learned in interacting with people in this space? Well, first and foremost, I think for me as a clinician in pediatric oncology and as a parent, we're on the same team. It's like everything for the kid. We are already, I'm already in sync with the parents that like, we're going to work together to do everything that we can for your child. And your child is important to me, even though I have my own children, they're grown adults now, but, and I have lots of other parents that I work with who have children. I try to focus with them on the fact that like, don't ever start a conversation with me about, I know you're busy. I said, just get rid of that. I said, busy is a state of mind and I'm here and you're here and we're both going to try to do everything we can to get your child through this very difficult and challenging period of time. And then what I have learned is that parents change, right? Obviously, over time, they get used to it. And I, you can't ever tell someone that the same day that the same week that the horrible news. And by the way, I never have to share that horrible news. That's one of the greatest reliefs of my mm-hmm. job is that I'm never the one who has to go in there and say your child has cancer. I never have to be the one to have to say, I'm sorry, we've done everything we can. This treatment's no longer working. I'm the one who the doctor will reference, like Mark's going to come talk to you in the next couple of days about the treatment plan and all the important information that you need to know before you're done with the hospital stay and going home and, or whatever it is. So I've sort of, I've got a lead in sort of, and I come in and it's like, okay, I'm the guy who's going to get you through the next, whatever it is, week, month, however long. And parents, I know that sometimes I need to repeat what I've told them multiple times and that's okay. I recognize, I upfront tell them, I know you probably haven't slept in a week. I know you're probably very stressed out. I do my homework. I see you have three other kids. What I've learned is that I need to just tell them all the things up front that they might be worried about and tell them to stop worrying about all of it and just focus on this one. Do whatever you need to do to focus on this particular one of your children and find the assistance or help that you need maybe from others. And I'll just pause here by saying, you know, I do my role most effectively because I have an incredible team of people that I work with. And so 
this might be a time where I would say, listen, I've got this great resource. It's called a child life specialist. She's going to come and work with you and talk to your kids about what's going on with their sibling. You don't have to do that. Good news. Also, I've got a social worker. She's phenomenal. She can help you if you're worried about finances or if you're worried about school. There's a lot of things that she can do to help alleviate some of it. So I sort of am the person, like I can't do everything. And I tell them, look, I'm not the guy that knows everything, but I'm the guy who knows the people who know. (laughs) And and I just say, look, if you just need one phone number for the rest of the time that you're dealing with this situation, it's mine. Come to me with every single question and I'll farm it out too, because I've got a great team and we can get things done. Yeah. So essentially, in many ways, you're a concierge, you're a caring servant, you're an empathic servant in many ways, and you really recognize it as such. And not to the diminishment of yourself, it seems like there is a virtuous cycle in which you feel empowered as you're empowering them. And I'm also just taken with the idea of how care is not something that can be taught. And that old cliche of people don't care how much they know until they know how much you care. Well, you go through the work of getting to know who they are. You read up on them. You let them know right at the beginning, I kind of know who you are. I don't know you perfectly, but I know some things about you. And I have some guesses as to what you're going through with regard to your sleep, your recent emotional experiences. And, you, and it seems like you start there by just getting, letting them know, giving them notice, hey, I'm with you. Very true. And what I was going to say, and I just remembered now, is that up front, you're meeting people who are reacting still. And what I've learned over the years is that's not necessarily the same parents that you'll be interacting with two, three months from now. And I've seen time and time again, I've seen a situation where the parent is just so despondent and shut down. And, you know, naturally, there's a sense of loss, there's a sense of depression. And then come a few months later, And they're the one, it's usually one parent sort of takes over as my main point of contact. And the other one is usually the one who's managing like the household and other things. I'll always have to remind myself up front, like, okay, this is just the reaction in the moment. And down the road, it's going to either get better or it could get worse. I mean, I've had both, but by and large, you know, first impressions, some people think first impressions are lasting, but in my world, and mm-hmm. professionally, I don't take first impressions. Yeah, you see people probably as being quite fluid, depending on what's going on at any given time, especially given the emotional and anxious nature of being a parent dealing with this. I realize that there are a host of variables that's going to make answering this question a little bit difficult, but bear with me a second, Mark, as I ask it. And that is simply children present to the hospital with different qualities, depending on their age, their individual differences, perhaps their coping strategies and the culture from which they come and a host of other variables. But what have been some things that you have rather consistently observed in children who are contending with cancer? It's a great question. It's actually very easy to answer. Kids, then this is why I'm just so grateful that pediatric medicine was what I was drawn to, because kids have an overwhelming resiliency an overwhelming fight in them that no adult I've seen possesses. They want this all to stop. They want this all to get better. And one thing I've also noticed is that parents underestimate their kids' ability to take medicines and to fight and to put up with what this horrible disease can often cause. But what makes me so hopeful is that Not all of them can take medicine, right? They don't all want to take 
pills or they can't swallow pills and they don't like to take their medicine. I mean, that's just a natural thing that kids have. But when you level with them about the fact that what's happening, they don't want to be sick anymore. They want to just be able to go play and be with their friends and do what five-year-olds do or 10-year-olds do or teenagers do. So I talked to my coworkers who work with adult medicine. And a lot of times these people have unfortunately become patients of theirs given due to lifestyle choices. Well, these kids didn't smoke and drink and get cancer that way. They just got dealt a bad hand. So they're already pretty healthy when they come to us. For some of them, it's the first time they've been sick. So it's like, yeah, I want to get this over with and move on. And so we try to do that. What a powerful finding, Mark. I'm wondering also, seeing that one of the things in life, in addition to perhaps death and taxes, that will happen to all of us is bad news. And people have different responses to bad news. Some people like to try to shove it under the rug and pretend it's not even there or even talk about it. What have been some of the learnings that you've had as a mortal, as a human who has specialized in a department where something bad has already happened and you've had many reps with it, what could the listener who is attending perhaps to someone who is suffering, if they were to say, hey, you as an oncology specialist, what could you teach me about helping people as they go through rough things in life? Well, I think first and foremost, you've got to really be willing to separate yourself and what this means to you and Mm. what this effect this has on you. Separate that out from what the patient might be going through. And it's a hard thing to say. It's, it's, It's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to do. But I think that, you know, we're all human. We all sort of, whether we want to admit it or not, we sort of think about ourselves first. It's just natural. You're the psychologist. You could probably explain that better. But now you can't, assume to know what that person needs or what that person wants. And look, I deal with a lot of teens who don't have any idea what they want for anything. It's a terrible time in life without cancer to be a teenager, especially nowadays. So I think the take-home message is just be willing to work harder to get to know the person. I know it's your child, but we don't really know our children the way we maybe know our spouse or our best friend get to know the sufferer and their wants and their needs. And those can change over time and be willing to readdress. Do you still want A, B, and C? Is, this, is A still your priority or have your priorities changed? Just a real willingness to sit down with the person. And I, as a nurse and a parent and a husband, can drive my loved ones crazy by trying to overdo there's a nurse's mentality. That's why some sure. people are nurses and some people are doctors. The nurse has this overwhelming desire to help. Even when all you're asked to do is maybe listen. I think I'm a good listener, but I, I'm not because I own to overdrive and it's like, oh, I need to fix this. Mm-hmm. And yet it I sounds think- like that need to fix is also tempered with your curiosity and your willingness to throw away everything that you think you know in service of trying to get to know the person who is dealing with whatever it might be. It almost seems like you're a curious anthropologist at times, entering a new country, trying to find out what's the context like here and how are people responding to it? You have to be. I think it's brilliant. We're touching on just your temperament as a fixer, as a helper, as kind of the nurse's burden, as I see it. One of the things that we know can happen is caregiver fatigue, compassion fatigue. 
and that you may take care of other people, but not take care of yourself. And yet I also know that you have excellent personal practices when it comes to self-care. And I'm wondering if you could share what has worked for you in terms of your own self-care process so that you can bring your best to this very challenging domain. Well, first and foremost, diet and exercise. I don't have the perfect exercise regimen and I don't have the perfect diet, but I have the perfect situation for myself. I make sure that I make time in my day for a run or for a trip to the fitness center or even just a walk. Just get out and walk, listen to a podcast, listen to music. I'm a huge, huge music fan. I'm a devoted music fan and I get a lot of my energy from music. So I go to as many live concerts as I can, even in the park, even a free Somebody just playing an instrument in the park, like I'll stop and sit down and I don't meditate, Adam. I know it's been proven to work and I know that people swear by it. I'm a little too, I don't want to say ADD because I don't think that's fair to people who actually suffer. But for lack of a better term, I just say I can never just sit and concentrate and breathing and all the stuff that helps people meditate. So I find that music is my form of meditation. I can zone out to music. I can run to music. Sometimes I have music, I have music playing in my office all day long at work. And so music is a way that I take care of myself because music makes me really happy. Yeah. And I've actually seen you at a concert dancing the entire time. I mean, you really, you, I saw you at George Clinton in parliament, you just danced and danced. So yeah, I think that's probably a good way of releasing and enjoying and being more present. So it is a form, believe it or not, there is something to be said about that as being a form of meditation. Meditation does not necessarily just mean sitting and noticing your breath, but it's actually merging with a thing and being mindful and being and letting yourself go. So that is awesome. I was wondering if also you could share a story, perhaps about one of the three-year leukemic patients who you've helped, or perhaps just a story that you think of from time to time of the stories that you've experienced in this position. Oh, yeah. I've got lots of stories. If you look here, you can see uh, this picture. Okay. So is that you in red? Yeah, that's me and in, in, in pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a day where I was here in my office. And the way it's set up, by the way, is my office is sort of off to the side, but really footsteps away from the infusion area where our patients come to get their chemotherapy or the procedure room where they're coming to get their, you know, We do a lot of lumbar punctures for leukemia patients. So this kid walks in and he's getting ready for his appointment. And our medical assistant is taking his vital signs. And I say hello. And he usually gives me a fist bump. He's four. He looked mad. He was just like kind of looking down. I said, what's going on? He's like, mommy made me come in my pajamas. We all have been there with our four-year-olds trying to get them to an appointment or trying to get them to school. It's like, okay, well. Look, if you're not going to get dressed, we're just going to go in pajamas. So <laughs> Natural consequences. So it just so happened that, you know, I have a, whatever. I like to be funny. I like to dress up. You know that. So I had, I just happened to have a onesie in my office, a red onesie oh, that was part of a best. thing one, thing two costume from Halloween years ago. And so I jumped into my red onesie that looked like pajamas <laughs> and I went and he was sitting in his infusion chair and I went out and I said, hey man, I just want you to know that some days... You know, any one of us could just end up in pajamas. It's no big deal. And he loved it. And oh, that's so great. He took that picture. 
and brought it to me the next time. And she said he talked about it all day at preschool for the next week, just telling people how, I mean, look, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know how you want it. A lot of these people call me Dr. Mark, even though I've never been a doctor. I've never even played one on TV. <laughs> uh, it's just one of those things. So he, he told them that. In spite of the fact that you haven't earned a doctorate, I think that your healing power is definitely doctoral in nature, but keep going. <laughs> okay. So I've got one other story. And this sort of tells you a little bit about my the humor part. Once the traumatic, your child has cancer and all that stuff happens, then it's a long relationship that we have with these kids. And so we sort of just get to know them. And one thing that I adore, I have this child life specialist and she's amazing. Her name's Wendy. What Our, is it's someone who has a master's degree in child development, I believe, or it might even be an actual child life. And she's going to kill me for not knowing this. But essentially, it's what it sounds like. They specialize in meeting the child, um, the patient on their level, whether it's a two-year-old, a six-year-old or a tween or a teen. So sort of like knowing developmentally what they can understand and what they can process and sort of helping them cope with parents, with school, with chemotherapy. Their whole life has been taken over by me, basically. (laughs) I'm controlling every move that these people make because the doctors put trust in me to get everything scheduled and get everything done. And suddenly they've got no allies, really. So I work very closely with Wendy. And one thing that we have this unspoken understanding that she can make fun of me at any time and she can use that sort of like the bumbling dad and she can use that. Bill Dunphy. Uh, yes, exactly. So she's allowed to just to use it. So one day she was having a conversation with one of our teens who was really having a bad day. And she leaked to him that my nickname in the clinic is Princess. <laughs> what? Uh, I didn't know that. Well, yeah. So before COVID, when we could all like actually interact and have lunch together or get coffee together, you know, I have certain needs. Um, (laughs) For example, my coffee cannot have sugar in it. Uh Give me cream in my coffee. But as soon as you put any sugar near my coffee, I won't drink it. So Wendy made the mistake of once getting me a coffee that had cream Uh and sugar and I wouldn't drink it. I was a total princess about it. And so from that day forward, she's like, okay, princess, what are you having today? (laughs) And so they got wind of this and the mom. Oh, no way. Actually, there you go. That's the best. I see a princess mark made. You insulated cup. That's the best. Uh-huh. So it's this metal insulated cup that says Princess Mark in princess font. It's the best with a crown. I love that so much. One of the things you're speaking to, and it's so important, is connection. Back when I was a kid, there was no such thing as a child life specialist. Basically, that song by the Fresh Prince, Parents Just Don't Understand. I mean, that was pretty much the theme song of anybody who was a kid. Now we're taking great interest in trying to understand. I'm seeing that as very, very helpful for the healing process of children going through something that is so demanding. I'm also thinking about my most demanding medical experience. It happened at the former campus, I believe, where you first were, Kaiser Santa Clara, back in the day, if you remember that one, of Homestead. I broke my jaw in three places right in the growth center. And I had had a delicious lunch that day, which was atypical. Usually I got kind of whole wheat and peanut butter and jelly. This day I got rye and roast beef. And the first thing my body did was I went into shock 
and I vomited. And I remember I could, I thought to myself, I feel like crying, but you know, I'm 10 years old. There's a joke right on my lips. I just looked up at the nurse and I just looked at her and said, that was such a good lunch. And (laughs) I realized that on some level, intuitively, I learned on my own, the Mark Bader treatment protocol, which is infuse as much appropriate humor as possible. Well, I tried to, I made it my own little dictate to be funny all week. And against all odds, I healed very quickly. There were a bunch of miracles that were outside the scope of my humor. But think meeting children where they are, and you are basically a child life specialist. You do know the lingo. You know how to let people know that you may be north of five decades old, but you are a kid at heart and the kids know it, whether you wear the red pajamas or not. So that's just a huge gift of just saying, I'm in sync with you. It's kind of like, don't walk in front of me, don't walk behind me, but walk beside me. And that's what you do. You walk beside the children, regardless of the age difference. Absolutely. And I try to stay up on movies, games, music. I try to, to somehow have some kind of connection with the teens and what they're doing and the little ones with what they're doing. And let me back up a little bit because it's sure. important. So when I made the decision way back when to get into pediatric nursing, because I thought, okay, nursing seems like a good calling and pediatrics is the way to go. I get my degree, I get my license, I go to work. And the first thing I learn (laughs) is that kids hate the nurse. They hate us because the doctor goes in and meets the kid and the parents and talks about what's ailing them and all this stuff. And everybody loves the doctor because the doctor, you know, has good bedside manner. They went into pediatrics for a reason. They leave the room and they tell the nurse, okay, stab him here, poke him there, <laughs> get me blood, get me urine, get me right. And then you go in and you try the same thing. Hi, I'm the nurse. And then they like you. And then immediately they hate you because you're torturing them. And it was. And you, and you don't have the perceived status of doctor. No, you've got right. nothing. All it is is you're a hired gun all of a sudden. And I For thought, sure. holy moly, what have I gotten myself into? And it was that moment when I realized that like, okay, I still like this, but what am I going to do? It's like, okay, you're just going to have to be an ally for the parents. I learned early on that parents are terrified when they have to bring their kid to the hospital. Oh my God. Because nowadays, most things we can treat outside. You don't have to get admitted to the hospital. So it's only serious things that get a kid in the hospital. So, and we're talking, this was about 20 years ago, by the way, that I was working in the hospital. So I, at that point I pivoted and I thought, okay, I'm just going to be an ally of the parent. And at some point, maybe, just maybe, the kids will see that the parents find me to be whatever, safe, funny, useful, competent, knowledgeable. Yes, whatever it is. And like, oh, well, if my parents like this guy, then you can't be that bad. So, (laughs) I, you know, I've always tried to like take a step back and not try to be in your face. Like kids don't want somebody in their face. They don't want an adult hovering over them and trying to, especially when they're sick. So that's been my angle for years is to just sort of buddy up to the parents and make sure the parents know that I'm here for them. And then I sort of ease into my interactions with the kids. And I'll tell you just recently, one of the parents, this is one of my favorite stories. One of the parents told me that he and his daughter were playing hospital at home. She has her own little doctor kit and he's laying on the couch and she walks up to him and she's like, daddy, how are you feeling? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I don't feel so great. I think I have a fever. And she immediately grabbed his phone and said, 
let's call Mark. Let's call Mark. Mark. <laughs> and she had the phone and she was yelling my name. <laughs> Since no person is an island, I'm wondering if you could share with the listeners who have been some of the influences in terms of who you've become as primarily, in this case, a nurse who helps peds during these really tough times, as well as the parents. Who've influenced you? Well, I would say, first and foremost, my greatest inspiration comes from my wife, Aww. Cheryl. Without her, I'm not even sure I would have you know, had the foresight to even consider launching into this career in the first place. Just watching her, I think I mentioned it before, just watching her in action and being in the, you know, around the medical field, just hearing her when she would come home, you know, even the, the hard days, she just seemed so fulfilled. Mm. And there's a, obviously a, a number of reasons why I think of her as my inspiration. And then you can't escape your family, Adam. So, <laughs> you know, I, I get my work ethic comes from my father and I would say that my compassion and my humor actually come from my mom. She's a pretty funny lady mm. <laughs> and very compassionate. My role model is my big bro, my brother. Oh, Ian. man. So there you go. The invader. All right. Well, you know, it's funny because I think you and I are somewhat unique in that in many ways, I came into my marriage somewhat half formed with regard to my vocation. And it was also my wife who saw me and recognized, yeah, you got to do this whole psychologist thing, even though it's later in life than you'd expected. So it sounds like Cheryl did that for you. I love what you said about your mom, dad, and your brother. That's amazing. Thanks. I'm going to ask you my final miracle question. That is simply this. Given your experiences as a pediatric oncology case manager and the hours that you've accumulated knowledge, and I'm even going to say it, even though you're going to give me a little pushback, but wisdom, what would be an insight or a skill that you think would be helpful to people that if you could just kind of put it in the air, what would it be? And how do you imagine that insider skill might help people live better lives? Jeez. I just think that until you can really step outside yourself and you're outside what your immediate circle and live or experience something through somebody else, I don't think you can really truly effectively help them. Now, I'm not saying that for everybody. I think there's plenty of people who could or could be helped. But I just think that we just have to be more aware of, you know, look up, take out the earbuds, look up from the phone and be present. There's too much to be missed when you're not. That's beautiful. And it's a cousin of the great Ferris Bueller who says, if you don't pay attention, life may pass you by. And one of the things that we cease to pay attention to at times is truly the experience of another person because we're so self-absorbed. So what you're speaking to, empathy, I would actually contend that it is a skill that can be further developed. It's a muscle and you've got tons of it, which is part of why you're so great at what you do. In addition to so many other qualities that I've come to appreciate over the years, and I just have to just share with the listeners one hilarious aside. And that is when I was in graduate school, I saw Margaret Cho on stage and it well, was a small may, venue. You may have to, I don't know the age of your listeners, but you may have to. Margaret Cho is a Margaret. brilliant comedian who has really created a huge name for herself. I think most people know her, but this was back when she was kind of starting. So I could actually walk up on stage 
you and she went to high school together. And I asked her, Hey, do you know Mark Bader? And she said, Oh yeah, he started Bye Bye Birdie. And he was really popular. <laughs> so anyway, I just had to share that little piece because it always cracks me up. But oh, you, you got a shout out from the great Margaret show. Anyway. And dude. somehow she won't return my texts. I don't understand. <laughs> She's gotten busy, hasn't she? <laughs> anyway, man, I just can't thank you enough for sharing your heart and your wisdom and your empathy with our listeners. I'm sure that it's going to be helpful in huge ways. Just thank you so much for who you are. I know that's a hard thing to thank for somebody for because you can't really help it. But dude, you're freaking awesome. Well, so are you. And on behalf of all the listeners, thank you for all of the wisdom you provide with all of your shows. I mean, it's incredible just how you're able to just pull all these different people together and get so much out of them. As you know, I was very reluctant to do this because I didn't think I had much to say, but there you are. Thanks, man. Um, uh, thank you. This was a pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you again soon. Right on, bro. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 